just mildly talented. Uh, you know, Ron composed that entire thing, and it's just, it's beautiful. I'm so appreciative of them leading us tonight. As I mentioned earlier, we are, we are continuing in Leviticus, and we are in our second week of 19 weeks in Leviticus. No, this time it's not a joke. If you have your Bible, if you'll open up to Leviticus chapter 2, we're going to be starting right there tonight. Leviticus chapter 2, and um, for those of you that weren't here last week, um, we, are, we are in this series. I think it's just a really beautiful series for us to begin, and, uh, and I know maybe some of you are saying, wow, I'm surprised. I didn't realize we were going to do a series. I didn't know anybody would do a series in Leviticus, and the answer is to that question, not very many people ever do. Um, so I'm sure some of you are surprised if you weren't here last week. Uh, those of you that are here this week and you were here last week, I'm the one that's surprised. Because you came back, and so I wasn't sure if you would. But in all seriousness, we began this, and I really think this is an important series, an important message. And, uh, and Leviticus, in all of its strangeness, is also a very beautiful book. And uh, when you dive into it, you begin to see things that you never saw before, and suddenly the Bible comes to life in new ways. And when that happens, when you see the Bible in new ways, I believe you start to see God in new ways, and I believe then your relationship with God begins to be transformed and renewed and refreshed. And so I truly believe if we can bring one of the most primitive, unusual books of the Bible, to life, we might be able to bring some new life into our life with Jesus, right? So that's kind of the idea behind this. So last week, there were a couple of concepts that I want to reiterate. They're incredibly important that we carry these with us through the book of Leviticus. It's really important that if you ha weren't here last week, that you actually hear these things. The first one is this. Um, the Bible is not a collection of, of histories and poetries and prophecies that are just randomly strung together by these random groups of people over several thousand years who just happened to find out something about God and then record it on a piece of paper. Um, in fact, the opposite of that is true. The opposite is that it's not about people finding God. The Bible is about God finding people, that God is actually searching for us. Just like Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep, and he tells the story about the lost son and talks about everyone searching for these things. That's how God searches for us. He's pursuing us. And what we see throughout the scriptures are very specific examples of God locating humanity in a particular place, in a particular time, and then engaging them in that place where they are. He draws them in from a particular place in their lives and then begins to take them to a new place. Now, sometimes we see that physically, and sometimes that's where our brain goes, is immediately we think, well, yeah, physically God took people from this place to that place and from that place to this place. We think about that, but I'm primarily speaking about spiritual terms. He's moving people from where he finds them to a place of redemption and renewal and wholeness. That is the primary business of God, and we see him doing that in the scriptures. And when we see that, when we start to see that in the scriptures, then there are new things that come to light. We start to understand human struggle. We start to un understand some of the unusual instructions. Now we see God um, interacting with people, maybe even a primitive people, where they are, and that begins to make sense of other questions that we might have. And so that's the first very important thing for us to hold in our minds. This is a story that is intentional. The Bible is intentionally showing us a God searching for us. Now, the second thing that's especially important for us to remember with Leviticus, um, with the Bible in general, but especially with Leviticus, is the historical context that we find it in. This is, this is very important to understand the Bible, is to understand the historical context of what we're reading and what was taking place around it and the culture and the customs. Um, the book of Leviticus, uh, we, we've already learned last week, is a very strange book. It's really unusual. It is dedicated to outlining in great detail the sacrificial rites and rituals of purification of the ancient Hebrew people. That is what the book of Leviticus is about. 
Like, here's the outline. Here's the instructions for how an ancient group of people are going to carry out sacrifices. In fact, if, if you look at it, if you started reading it, I had a friend this week, he said, man, I started reading Leviticus. I'm real curious about where you're going to take this. If that's you, if you wonder yourself, like, who reads this stuff? Like, who sits around and reads Leviticus? You're not alone. Leviticus is not a page turner. It's not one you're like, oh, I can't wait till chapter three. That's, that is not Leviticus. But let me just tell you this. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't intended to be. See, the book of Leviticus is actually an instruction book for the priests of Israel. Light bulb should go on right there. Okay, is this supposed to be a page turner? Is this supposed to be entertaining? No, this is an instruction book for the priests of Israel. The people of Israel are coming out of a culture where sacrificial systems were used. In fact, during this time in history, cultures uh, everywhere were sacrificing to their gods. We went into great detail on that last week. But let me just say that sacrifice was the language that humanity all over the world was using to communicate with their various gods and deities or their mythologies. So God, the one true God that we read about in the Bible, sees these people and he says, okay, if this is how you're going to relate to me, if this is how you speak to me and I speak to you, then let me be very specific. Let me be very clear about how we do this. And so we get these instructions. In fact, the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus outline five distinct sacrifices that the ancient Hebrews carried out. Five chapters, five sacrifices. That's how the book begins. Uh, in fact, last week we looked at something called the burnt offering. Um, this week in chapter two, we're going to look at the second one, and I know you can't wait for it, right? It's called the grain offering. If you have your Bible, here we go. Uh, chapter, chapter two, verse one, we're going to do something a little different from last week. We're going to read the whole thing together because it's just that exciting. Verse one, says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not only does God like the smell of a barbecue week one, he also likes the smell of Subway fresh baked bread, right? That's what this says. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part for the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord and when it's presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar and the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt, and you shall not let the salt of the covenant with the Lord your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Isn't this good stuff? Now, can I just say out loud the question that we're all asking? How in the world is this going to apply 
to us living in 2021, right? I mean, those of you that are new to church and you're exploring faith in Jesus, you're thinking, wow, this is way over my head. No, it's, it's way over all of our heads. <laughs> we all read this and we all go, what is this even talking about? We, we all wonder, what does this mean? And how could this even possibly matter for us? So I want to unpack it because there's some really beautiful things in here. I wouldn't waste your time. I hope you know that by now. I want to give you some beautiful stuff, although I might go long tonight. I'm just warning you. Thursday night, you get the long one. I'm just telling you this. So let me start with the offering itself, the grain offering. You heard the word grain a lot here. The Hebrew word for grain is the word minha. Say that with me. Say minha. Minha is the word grain. The word minha carries some very real significance with it. It is layered throughout this text. You hear minha, minha, minha. And actually the sacrifice is simply called the minha. That's the name of the sacrifice. But to understand minha, I want to just tell you a few other stories, give you some roundness to this word. Um, there's a story that's found in Judges chapter 3. Uh, Judges is filled with all sorts of really interesting stories. It is a page turner. Um, the people of Israel in Judges chapter 3, they've been conquered by this king. His name is Eglon. And, uh, and literally Eglon, the Bible says, is this chubby little king that lives over the hill. That's how Eglon is described. He is a chubby little guy that lives on the other side of the hill. And he conquers. He basically claims the land. He doesn't actually come in and war with the people of Israel. He just conquers and just says, I own you. Like, I'm going to just, I'm going to possess your land. And, uh, and there's this response. There's a reaction in Judges chapter 3, verse 15. And I just want you to listen to this. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Love these details in the Bible, right? The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Here's what's interesting. The word tribute in Hebrew is the word minha. Minha, they sent a minha to this chubby little king on the other side of the hill. Now we translate it tribute. So they, they sent a grain offering. So the word minha can actually mean this is a gift that you offer to a foreign king to smooth relations. So, so this is how this would happen, and this is how it would happen, this is how it did happen here, is that this king would claim you, he would say, I'm going to own your land, and I'm going to take you, and I've got a lot of horses, and I've got lots of swords and men, and so I claim you. And so you kind of had a choice to make. When you found out that the king of Moab, Eglon, claimed you, you could either say, no, you're not. Come take it from us. Or you could send a minha. And a minha was sort of like this offering that you gave him, this gift you gave him to say, we're with you. <laughs> no need to bring your horses. No bring, them in your men, bring your men. We don't need to fight about this. We're yours. We actually submit to you. Here's the minha. Here's the evidence that says you don't need to come battle with us. Ah, there's this submission, Right? You're willing to submit to this person. Now you come back to Leviticus chapter 2, and here we have the minha. We have this offering. And what we see just from this one example is that this offering is an offering of submission to the Lord. It's submission. It's me saying, no, no, I see who you are. You're God, and I am not. It's like you're a conquering Lord of this land, and I'm saying, no, no, you are the Lord of my life. My entire being, my entire land, everything that I possess, the minha says, nope, you have rule over that. We're not going to fight over this one. So minha means more than just grain. Are you with me so far? Here's another example. Deuteronomy chapter 26. 
Minha is presented as a way of being grateful, a way of expressing gratitude. Um, Deuteronomy 26 verse 9 says, And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So the writer of Deuteronomy is writing about this offering of thanksgiving, and what he's doing is he's acknowledging God as the, the author of all things. He's saying, we might plant a seed, but you water it, and you bring the sunshine, and you bring the wind that pollinates, and you do all of these other things, and everything about anything that grows out of the ground actually comes from you, and I actually have no control over those things. And so everything we have is, is yours. And so the first things that come that, that are evidence to your working, we call these the first fruits and we offer these to you. And so minha, again, is this idea, God, you are God. You are God and you are in control. So we have this idea of submission and then we have this idea of just recognition like, God, you are the one who is in control. It's us saying, God, thank you for all that you do and all that you are. Then there's this third nuance to this word. Um, for time's sake, I'm not going to get into this one um, because it, it also carries a sense of, um, the word minha carries a sense of reverence. Minha means there's like a holy moment, like you recognize this. So when these people were approaching this tent where these sacrifices are being made, as they considered their lives and they considered their families, they considered their crops, as they came towards this God who is making himself known to them, a God who's not like other gods, they recognized the supernatural nature of this moment, and so there was a reverence. So we get all three of these ideas along with minha. So yes, it's grain, but the minha represents submission. The minha represents reverence. The minha represents this whole concept of us approaching God and saying, you are Lord. So those three dimensions are all a part of this. So this offering, that sort of gives you a picture of what's taking place and what they're being told to do. This is how you're going to approach the Lord. Now, I want to go back to Leviticus 2 just for a moment, and I want to take a deep dive, kind of a second part of this, and I want us to look at the ingredients of the minha. What are the ingredients of this whole sacrifice? So we're going to look at the details. And as we look at the details, I really want you to ask the questions. It's really important that we ask questions, and it's okay and healthy for us to say, what is that? Like, why is that there, and why is that significant? I want you to under, wonder, why in Leviticus 2 is God so specific about these things? So let's look at the first ingredient. In verse 1, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1 says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. We'll pause right there. So fine flour is the first ingredient. And when you hear the word fine flour, it's exactly what you think it is. In your house somewhere, you have a bag, you have a container of flour. How many of you have a bag or a container of flour in your house? Okay. What you have in your house is exactly what's being referenced in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. The problem is we've lost the sense of how amazing what you and I have in our house and buy for a couple bucks at the grocery store. We've lost a sense for how amazing this is. So, so you dial it back to this culture, and the way you got flour in general was by picking the grain, right? You'd go and you'd pick the grain, you'd bring it back to your house, and you'd have this bowl, this stone bowl, and you'd have a, a, another stone, and you would begin to grind the grain. You'd begin to crush it, and you would work it, and you would pull out some of, the, some of the imperfections, and it was labor. You would grind it, and then you would grind it some more, and then you would just continue this for hours until you would get this. There's no machinery that's making fine flour for you. So if you said, I want to feed my family bread at tonight's dinner, you would go and pick the grain, and then you would grind the flour, and you would go through this process, and there was tons of labor involved. 
And so what developed for people in that culture was sort of a usable daily standard. Like, it's good enough for who it's for. You ever heard that phrase before? That's kind of how people got. It was like they would work, and they would work, and they would work, and they would go, okay, you know, we're kind of getting to the point. This is usable. Like, this isn't the best flower, but I need to get on with some other things. And so there comes this standard that is fairly imperfect. Daily flower in this culture had imperfections. Daily flower in this culture, there were kernels, there were specks, there were larger chunks. It wasn't as fine. It wasn't as clean. It was very different than the flower that we have today. It was true stone ground, but not far enough flower. To get the flower that we have, you have to work for hours and hours. And you would pick all the imperfections, and you would have this fine flower. It would take constant and continual effort, which means the fine flower in this culture becomes something of great value because it represented effort, right? It represented care and concern. It was like a skill. Fine flower was rarely ever used. It was only used for special occasions. So symbolically, fine flower in the culture begins to represent something that it would never represent in our culture. It begins to represent purity. It begins to represent something unblemished. It begins to represent excellence. So fine flour is clean. Fine flour is beautiful. And fine flour is rarely ever used. So we go back to the minha and God says, I want fine flour. And the people hear God saying, I want excellence. He wants the best. That's the first ingredient. Now let's go to the second ingredient. Second ingredient, verse one, it goes on. He says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it. So the second ingredient in this offering is oil. Now why is oil significant? Well, if you hold your place in Leviticus in your Bible and you flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 10, We meet this individual named Samuel who is essentially God's man. Like he's the guy that God has chosen to be his voice to the people of Israel. He's sort of a spiritual leader and a political leader. He does all of these different functions. He's sort of a prophet to the people of God. And uh, and he speaks speaks on behalf of God. He's really important during this time. And during this time period in 1 Samuel chapter 10, it's kind of a unique nation. The nation has Samuel, but he's not really a king. And all the other nations have kings. And so the people of Israel cry out to God and they're like, every other kid in the neighborhood has a king. Why can't can't we have a king? And so God says, okay, then I'll give you a king. And so then we read about God giving them a king. God selects one. His name is Saul. And he says, I am going to pour out my spirit on Saul. He's going to be filled with my spirit. He's going to be led by my spirit. He's going to move in my spirit. And so then he tells Samuel this. He says, I want you to go acknowledge him before the people. I want you to go there and anoint him. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And the first question we should be asking is, Do you think it's a good idea to pour a flask of oil over the new king's head? (laughs) Well, throughout the Old Testament, olive oil is representative of God's spirit and God's presence. So when he pours the oil over Saul, it's dripping off of his hair and off of his beard and onto the floor. Symbolically, what he's saying is this man is covered with the spirit of God. So oil is synonymous with the presence of God's spirit. 
So go back to the offering in Leviticus chapter 2. We have fine, pure flour, and then you pour oil. Then that brings us to the third ingredient. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, you shall bring fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. This is where our wheels should start to turn a little bit. Frankincense is a really interesting substance, um, not just um, that it's fragrant and really, really powerful, but also how its fragrance gets formed. Um, frankincense is, is, is formed from an oil, and this, um, this tree that frankincense is drawn from grows in particularly rocky places. It, it grows in places, if you've ever seen one of those images of a tree that just seems to be growing out of the side of a mountain and there's just rocks everywhere, that's what the frankincense tree that it comes from is like. It grows in these rocky places places, and as it presses its way through the pressure of the rocks, there are these bulbs that get forced on the outside of the tree, and the way you get frankincense is by breaking into those bulbs, and you mash, or you crush, or you bruise the things that are inside the bulb, and so there's this pressure, and then there's a crushing, and out of that crushing, there's this fragrance that now you get from these oils. So what do we have? We have this pure flour, we have this oil, and then we have this frankincense that when pressured produces something that's beautiful. And then the instructions continue. We take these ingredients to Aaron's sons, the priests, that's what Leviticus says, and you, you, you cook. And, and in one of the three ways that we mentioned earlier, you cook, and that brings us through to verse 10. Um, and verse 10 that kind of takes us all the way through that. Verse 11, he steps outside for a second. He says, wait a second, before I go any further, I need to tell you something that can't be in here. So we get to verse 11 and it says, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. And you kind of scratch your head now and go, okay, but what's the deal with leaven and honey? Those are generally pretty good things. Yeast and honey, that's a pretty good thing. And again, you say, why? What's the problem? Why are you being so specific? Well, I want you to think about this for just a moment. If you put yeast in dough and you leave it and you walk away, what happens to it? It rises, right? It changes on its own. It does something on its own. Um, if you take honey and you pull it out of the honeycomb and you just pull it straight out and then you just leave it out on a counter somewhere, what happens to the honey? It hardens. It changes, right? In fact, maybe it attracts flies and other things, right? There's things that happen with honey when you leave it out. There's things that happen with, with bread, with yeast in it, dough with yeast when you leave it out. Those two images for the people of Israel, specifically people living in the Near East during this time, those two images became symbols for corruption in humanity. That if you leave people alone too long, they will ultimately disintegrate. They'll do things. They'll begin to, to, to fragment themselves. And so there's this whole idea that, that honey, and yeast become symbols of dysfunction, symbols of brokenness, symbols of people's uh, ability to wander away and do their own thing. It was corruption. It was decay. So when God says, when you prepare this offering, I don't want a single speck of leaven or yeast, and I don't want a single ounce of honey that people knew what he was saying. I don't want anything that represents corruption as a part of this sacrifice. And then there's one final thing in the ingredient list. Verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. <laughs> you go, okay, now why the salt? Why, why all these specific things? Well, again, in the ancient Near East, there was this practice. 
And this is really strange. But when you made a deal with somebody, when you signed a contract, when you said, I'm going to give you, you know, three of my oxen for nine of your lambs, and you shook on it, one of the customs of the ancient Near East is that you would each take a little bit of salt, and looking at each other, you would eat the salt in front of each other. Sounds really strange. I'd rather just sign with a pen on some paper. That sounds a lot better to me. But that's what they would do. They would take the salt, and they would eat the salt together as a sign of their agreement. So this became a symbol of agreement. The salt became a sign of a covenant. So look at a place like Numbers. Later in the Old Testament, you see things like this. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19 says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. You go, a covenant of salt. Now, you might have read that before this moment and thought, I never knew what that meant. Now you do. It was a covenant of salt. There was this picture of two people making a deal and throwing salt in their mouths and saying, deal, deal. That's what this was. So let me ask you this question. Besides enhancing flavor, what else does salt do? It preserves, right? Salt preserves. It makes something last longer than it would have without the salt. So when God says, I want the flour and I want the oil and I want the frankincense, and then he says, I want the salt, he's saying this thing that we're doing right here, this thing you're bringing, he's telling the people in their language This is a covenant. You bringing this to the sons of Aaron, we are making a deal. There is something everlasting to what we're about to do. So, based on what we learned last week, what we say about God being specific and what we learned about how these rituals paint a picture, could all of this be pointing to something else? Could all of this stuff that they're doing, yes, it means something to them, but could it be pointing to something else? Or maybe we should ask the question, is it pointing to someone else? If you flip over, hold your finger in Leviticus and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let me fill you in on what's happening in Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews is talking about a new kind of priest. In Leviticus, we have the priests that are the sons of Aaron, but in Hebrews, we're talking about a new priest, and the writer of Hebrews is referring to Jesus. And he's saying, listen, in Jesus, the followers of Jesus, we have a new kind of priest who offers our offer for us, who does what priests do, but he understands where we're coming from. He's not separated from us in some strange way. He's down to earth. But at the same time, there's no sin in him. He understands where we are, and yet he is without sin. This idea of him being without sin is a theme that is presented about Jesus throughout the entire New Testament. Um, we see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, where he says, In Jesus no sin was found. There was no sin found in Jesus. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is excellent. The Bible says this over and over, that he's pure. He's unblemished. Sounds a lot like what? fine flour, right? Do you think there's a connection? Let's look at another ingredient. If you look at the biographies of Jesus, you'll notice something. Uh, In the birth account of Jesus in the book of Luke, 
there's this moment where Mary is stunned by the announcement of the angel that she's going to give a child. And she's primarily stunned because she's a virgin. And she's like, I don't know how this is going to happen. And the angel says to her, if you've read the story, if you know this, in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, he says to her that the spirit of God is going to come upon you and you will conceive a son. Which is why Jesus is referred to as being born of the spirit. He's born of the Spirit. Look at another one of Jesus' biographies, the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is going into the wilderness and he's about to be tempted um, by Satan, it begins with this important detail that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he's born of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. Then Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, at the baptism of Jesus, Matthew goes into great detail to talk about the heavens opening up and what descends from the heavens on Jesus as he rises out of the water. It looks like a dove, and what is it? It's the Spirit of God that descends on him like a dove. Jesus is baptized in the Spirit. So he's born of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. He's baptized in the Spirit. And, and then if you, at some point on your own time, look up John chapter 3 because it says in John chapter 3 that Jesus operated by the power of the Spirit. So go back to the Old Testament. What was the symbol of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is, is born of the Spirit. He's, he's filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. What was the Spirit represented by in the Old Testament? It was oil, right? We have oil, Leviticus chapter 2, being poured out. Was Jesus covered in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you think this is all pointing somewhere? Yes. How about this, Isaiah chapter 53. In the Old Testament, long before the crucifixion of Jesus, this is one of those beautiful evidences of Jesus being the Messiah. Um, in, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes this beautiful poem that points to the person of Jesus. And, and just tell me what this sounds like. Verse 7, I'll just start there. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that it's led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people, and they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet it was the will of the Lord, listen to this, to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt do you hear the language of this there's this crushing there's this oppressing there's this working down with Jesus it's this symbol what does that sound like in fact the more Jesus was pressed the more beautiful the fragrant from his life became all of this sounds like frankincense right he's pressed he's beaten he's bruised one more thing if you take flour and oil and frankincense and salt and you put it in an oven, what are you making? Bread. You're making bread, right? What did Jesus refer to himself as? The bread of life. Do you see this thing coming to life? He's the bread of life. Could it be that this grain offering, the minha, is a picture that's pointing to Jesus? All of the ingredients come together and then it's sacrificed on the altar. Bread of life offering himself so that we might live. Isn't this beautiful? So, so here's this book that most people have discarded as this primitive and weird. And yet right here at the very beginning, the formation of God's people, you just see God saying, I want to show you something. And you see the detail and the beauty. This isn't primitive. This is God painting a picture and saying, look at where this is going to go. 
And the salt is covenant making. He's making a covenant. Do you realize that covenant making, we could also call that confidence making. We sang about confidence tonight. My confidence is your faithfulness. God is saying, when he makes a covenant in this moment, he's saying, this is where you and I stand together. This is where you you and I are with each other. And do you know what happens when you know where you stand with God? There's confidence, right? There's confidence. There's confidence. You start to live a life like you never imagined you could live. When you know where you stand with God, you live a life like you never imagined you could live. There is this confidence that comes about you. You're not blown and tossed by the wind. You're not disrupted by things people say. You're not given to all of these different things that happen. There's this confidence. These people, think about this, this this ritual, this sacrifice, they did this over and over and over again because then they knew the relationship is good. The relationship is good. So I want to take you back about 30 minutes, or maybe 35, 30 minutes. We took communion. And by the way, after last week, doesn't this week coupled with last week, make a little more sense out of communion? When Jesus said, this is my blood in the cup, and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. And then he says, I want you to keep doing this over and over and over again because I want you to always know where we stand. I always want you to know where we stand with each other because if you can know where you stand with God, you will walk confidently as a follower of me. That's what he does. God made a covenant with us. All of this is pointing that God made a covenant and he doesn't want you to forget it. He never wants you to forget it. He wants you to be the kind of person that can love unconditionally the way that he has loved you unconditionally. He made you to live a certain way, a way with him, a way with others. And when that happens, there's something beautiful. All of it begins this way. All of it begins when you and I say yes to the way of Jesus. So if you're somebody that's in the room or you're watching online and you're exploring faith in Jesus, I hope that tonight as we look at Leviticus, that we looked at thousands of years, there were things that were being created to point to the person of Jesus, that your faith, that something would spark inside of you and that you would grow and that you would trust God more, realizing this isn't weird, this is primitive, isn't primitive, this is beautiful. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I did it. You guys are probably tired. You're going to go home and slow that down, play it over, listen to it on half speed, and be like, okay. So many beautiful things in the book of Leviticus. But my prayer for you tonight is that as you're pressed, your life would be a fragrant offering to the Lord. That you would know that you can stand in confidence in any situation, in any scenario, because you know where you stand with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much.
Thanks for being here tonight. Remember, there's folks out in the commons if you want to sign up for kids, and we will see you guys hopefully next Thursday or even on Sunday. Maybe you want to catch this one twice. We don't care. Come back. We'll see you guys later.